turning your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. We're coming to the beginning of the end of our study of the book of Hebrews. And in these last four sessions, the writer of Hebrews is going to present some very practical applications for our Christian lives. So let's um, read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 from New American Standard Version. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look into your word that you would be pleased to meet with us. You know where each of us is in our walk with you, in our relationship with you. You know uh, where we have the need of you to speak to our hearts. So we pray by your spirit you would be pleased to do that. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. This session, as uh, Dave pointed out, has the title, The Pattern of Faith, Looking to the Example of Christ and Submitting to the Discipline of God. And to really get the context of, of verses 12, 1 through 11, we need to consider the full context of the passage. And so uh, we're going to go back again to chapter 10 like we did last week. If you turn back there just for a moment um, and, and notice verses... Um, 32 to 34, but remember the former days when after being enlightened you, endure a great, you endured a great conflict of suffering partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. Uh, for you showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. He's, he's writing to Christians who are undergoing um, some real suffering. Uh, and, and they're looking at uh, tribulations, the taking of property, imprisonment. And then he, he turns and he tells them they need, um, they have the need of endurance. Verse 35. Therefore... Uh, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And so this whole section, it deals with endurance, as, as we're going to see. And then he, he talks about the promise. And in verse uh, 36, he said, uh, you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And he's going all the way back to the promises that he talked about uh, in this new covenant that we have with Jesus Christ, this new relationship with God that we have through Jesus Christ, and all the way up. And he says in verse 37, for yet in a very little while he is coming, will come, and will not delay. 
And he says, listen, Christ is coming. There's going to be this fulfillment of these promises. And you need to hold on to these promises. Um, and then in Hebrews 11, he gives examples of believers who looking to God's promises faithfully endured. And so when we come to Hebrews 12, 1 to 3, he gives the example of Jesus. And this, this is going to be the capstone of this whole passage. And, and then it's also a transitional passage that leads us into the discipline of God. And in that section, he's going to talk about the promises for suffering's process and its products. So let's go over to chapter 12. And the first word of chapter 12 is, therefore, in most Bibles, some of the new uh, translations will have something like, therefore, then, or therefore, since. Mine has, therefore, since. And it's not the usual word for therefore. It's actually a triple compound word, which is to draw your attention to the emphasis that Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 is making, that this is the climax of this whole passage. Everything he said at the end of chapter 10, Everything that he's been saying in chapter 11 finds its capstone here in these first few verses. And so he really wants us to understand that, that what he's saying is really the most important um, thing about this whole idea of endurance. And so he goes on, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. We're in a race. If you come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have been enrolled in a race. You don't get the option of not being in the race. You are in the race. And so he uses this picture, this imagery of a, of a race. He points back to chapter 11 as a cloud of witnesses. The idea of a cloud is the vast number. There's this huge number. At one point he says, I don't have time to speak of all the people that I could speak about. There's this huge crowd of witnesses. And commentators disagree whether these witnesses are spectators, so they're watching us, or if the idea here is their testimony has been left behind to encourage us. Kind of like you go into a school gym and you see all the, the names on the wall of who's got the longest jump, who ran the fastest mile, and they're leaving their testimony as kind of an incentive for you to run well. Most commentators lean at these people and saying, look at the, how they ran. They were winners. See how they ran. And now you use that as an encouragement to you uh, to run the race well. And then he encourages them to look at themselves. You know, um, runners uh, have to do certain things to run well. There are certain things that are necessary. And notice he includes himself because he's still here on earth. So he says, let's us. And he's asking the question, are you doing the things necessary to win? And he lays out several of them here. He says, lay aside every encumbrance. King James Version says, wait. Uh, the words used only here. Serious runners do everything they can do to get rid of weight. Um, really good runners 
have special shoes that weigh next to nothing because they, they want to get rid of that weight. And, and these uh, weights are maybe things that are harmless in themselves, but they hinder your progress. Um, they keep you from giving God your best effort. And it can be a lot of things. Various commentators list hobbies, habits, friendships, career. Lots of things out there that I can invest so much of my life in that I don't have time to give it to Christ. And he says, be careful. They're, they're not wrong. They're perfectly good for someone else. But if you're racing, if you're committed to being in the race for Jesus Christ and winning, some things have to be let go. And then he turns to another thing, and he says, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Sin here is viewed like a piece of cloth, uh, clothing that entangles and trips us up. Uh, you know, you wouldn't want to run in a race in a long robe. You just wouldn't do well. And sin always trips us up. Um, we saw last week those six names, Gideon, Barak, and and Samson, and Jephthah, and David, and Samuel. And, and they were men who were men of faith, but they had some struggles. Things like doubt, fear, discouragement, clinging to something that God has said no to, uh, rash promises, carnality. And there are sins that trip you up. And if you, if you look at those six men, you, you see that David, for example, came very close to being disqualified from doing anything. God had to sovereignly intervene to save him from himself. And sin trips us up. And we have to have this, this view and be looking at our lives and, and um, putting aside sin as God points it out in our lives. And then he says, let us run with endurance. That We saw that back in, in uh, verse 32 where he talked about you endured a great conflict of suffering. And in verse 36, he says, you have need of endurance. We see it in Moses' life. In chapter 11, in verse 25, it says he endured as seeing the one who was unseen. And certainly, even though he doesn't use it, you would have to say Noah preaching for a hundred years while building that ark and being mocked, he endured. Abraham living in the land of promise and choosing to live in a tent, endured. All these people endured. And so two times in this passage, he's going to talk to us about endurance. Um, holding fast by faith to the promises of God and keeping on, keeping on. Persevering. You're in a race. Let go of those things that are going to hinder you from racing well. Deal with sin in your life that will trip you up and perhaps even disqualify you. And then run for Jesus Christ with endurance. And notice he says the race that is set before us, or the race marked out for you. The expositor's commentary puts it this way, the race appointed, 
lying before us as our destined trial. Then let us run, not waiting for a pleasanter, easier course, but accepting that which is appointed and recognizing the difficulties as part of our race. The Christian race is an obstacle course. And while we, what we face, all face, has similarities with other Christians, every race is different. I was looking online at a, at a group that monitors persecution of Christians. And they said last year, 4,300 Christians were killed. 4,200 were arrested and imprisoned, often without trial. That's about one every two hours in both of those categories. That's their race. By the grace of God, that's probably not the race you are in this morning. That you're thinking, maybe I'm going to go home and I'm going to be arrested and imprisoned. Or maybe there'll be a mob waiting outside my home or waiting outside this church to drag me off and end my life. But there are Christians, and that's their race. And what's in your life is your race. And so he says, with endurance, we have this race that has been designed for us to make me like Christ, to help me uh, grow in those areas that God wants me to go, to help develop whatever gift I have. There, there are things that God is doing in our lives. And so then in verse 2, he moves to Jesus, our example. He says, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. This word looking occurs only here in the New Testament. It's a different word for looking. It means stop looking at everything else and focus on Jesus Christ. Don't look at the trials. Don't look at other Christians who aren't going through the trial you're going through. Don't look at other things around. You fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. You focus on him. And notice he used the word Jesus, not Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah or the Lord Jesus Christ. He's focusing on Jesus Christ in his humanity. He was just like you and me yet without sin. He faced the things we faced. He feels the things we feel. We look to one who's been down this trail. And so he says, the author or leader or pioneer, it's the same word used over in chapter 2, verse 10, and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that we should follow. He's the leader. He's the pattern. He's the one who's run the race that really entails what all of us are going to face. And he's the perfecter of that race. He's the one who's ex um, exercised complete faith. Like in Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews is going to focus on a specific illustration of faith in the Lord's life. The cross. And notice what he says. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, this one who's, who's the one we look to, he's the leader in this race, and he's the one who's done it well, done it the best, 
who for the joy set before him, that's the promise. Remember he said, hold on to your promise. Isaiah 53, 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, my servant will justify many. There's the promise. You go to Psalm um, 22, and the first 21 verses talk about the agony of the cross. And beginning in verse 22, he says, I will tell your name to my brethren. Check the New Testament. The Lord never called his disciples his brethren till the minute he stepped out of the tomb. And he said, go tell my brethren. And the writer of Hebrews talks about the fact he had to become like us so that we could be his brethren. There was a joy set before him. And it was the promise of God. And he holds on to the promise of God. And what did he do? He endured. What did he endure? He endured the cross, despising the shame. How did Jesus endure it? F.F. Bruce says, by sheer faith. By sheer faith. In 1 Peter 2, verse 23, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. By faith, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And the result is, he sat down. The verb indicates uh, a complete victory. He sat down at the right hand of God. It's a permanent result, a total victory. And so he goes on in verse 3, and he says, For consider him. This is a mathematical term. It means to calculate, to total up Jesus' sufferings, going over them again and again. And isn't that what we do every week in the breaking of bread? We remember his sufferings. We Rehearse them. We calculate them up. As we're looking at him and he is our example, we see and calculate his sufferings on our behalf. And he goes on. You use those calculations. You consider him who's endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You know, there's a danger of discouragement. The word so that introduced the purpose for considering the example of Jesus. In the race, you get weary and discouraged. If a trial goes a long time, you get discouraged. If it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, uh, think, think of some of those we read about in Hebrews 11, who never saw any results of their faith. And, and you see no results, and you see no results. Uh, some other Christian, they have a wonderful result, and I see, and, and you get weary. He says, you look at the Lord Jesus. You look at the Lord Jesus. You calculate how he faithfully endured through it all. To keep yourself from discouragement. He comes down to the next section, beginning in verse 4, and he talks about the cause of their weariness. 
Verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. The cause of their weariness is this struggle. This struggle against sin. Now, this is not personal sin. That was dealt up in, in verse 1. Lay aside the sin which so easily entangles. The, the sin here in, in verse 4 um, is the sin of those persecuting them and trying to turn them from following Christ. It's other people's sins. Have you ever been, uh, had suffered the consequences of someone else's sin? And, and then, but probably here, it's other people's sin. But here, the more emphasis is the hostility of sinners. Those that, that, that put roadblocks in the way. Those that, that persecute or, or mock. And, and it, it's the same thing that we saw up in verse 3. For consider him who's endured such hostilities by sinners against himself. As you go through life, you begin to run into people who don't appreciate the fact that you're a Christian, that you want to live by faith. And they make it hard. And you struggle with that. You struggle being in a world where you're always going against the current. And he says, listen, I understand the struggle you're going through. But, he says, you have not resisted um, to the point of shedding blood. Now, please understand, this is not us shedding other people's blood. This is our own blood, um, like Christ did. Or those, back in chapter 10, verse 35, it says, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so they might obtain a better resurrection. They could have been set free from being tortured, but they chose by faith to shed their blood faithfulness to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful to the destruction of fortresses. Our race is an obstacle course. Some people in this world face imprisonment. They face um, torture. They face uh, loss of property. They face um, death. You may be facing illness. You, you may be facing uh, job tensions, family crises. All these forms of, of suffering are what he's talking about here. These obstacles in our race. And so he turns to how God uses this in our lives. And he, he refers to a forgotten exhortation, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not light, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son who he receives. They knew this passage, but he says... Um, You've forgotten it. And so notice he says, um, which is addressed to you as sons. The word of God is written for us to apply to our lives. Now, when we come 
to the New Testament epistles, it's very easy because it's almost one-to-one. Here's a command, just do it. Here's a teaching, put it in the practice. When you go into the Old Testament, which were written for our instruction, there are principles that apply to our lives. But the word of God is meant to be put into our lives and lived out in our lives. And he says, listen, this passage addresses you as sons and you've forgotten it and you need to put it into practice. Um, and so he quotes Proverbs 11, uh, 3, verses 11 to 12, which speak of the two perils of discipline. The first one is, he says, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Regarding lightly the Lord's discipline is not valuing God's training very highly because we focus on the negative experiences rather than what God wants to teach us in it. It keeps God from accomplishing what he wants in our lives. And the danger is we become callous. So God, bring, allow something in my life. He wants me to go through this obstacle by faith, trusting him. There's a lesson in it for me. There's some uh, thing for me to learn, but I don't want to go through this trial. And so I turn from, from trusting God and going through whatever is there, and I begin to question God, I begin to complain, and I begin to become callous to what God wants to do. This Arthur Pink said, Remind yourself of how much dross there is yet among the gold and view the corruption of your own heart and marvel that God has not smitten you more severely. Form the habit of heeding his taps and you'll be less likely to receive his raps. And every parent understands that, right? When you correct your child and you speak, sometimes maybe uh, a little strongly to them and they don't listen, well, there's a bigger way of speaking to him down the road. And God's a father. And God's committed to working in our lives. Don't regard lightly God's discipline. And then he says, or faint when you're reproved by him. Or become so overcome by your problems that you give up. And instead of becoming callous, you simply collapse and become spiritually unresponsive to what God's doing or why. The key word in this passage is um, discipline or King James Version chastening or chastisement. It's used nine times. The actual word means the training of a child. Child training has three specific purposes. Corrective punishment to draw the believer closer to God, to convince him not to sin again, and to help him grow and mature. You, you all understand that the, uh, my, my father hated stealing. I had, maybe you know my testimony, I had discovered um, jello, dried jello, as being just like a giant pixie stick. And so I regularly would raid the kitchen cabinet and wolf down jello and my father was determined not to raise a thief and you can see where there was a problem 
And so there was a belt hanging on my dad's bathroom door that was a corrective uh, teaching tool. Because he didn't want to raise a thief. God doesn't want you to live in sin. God doesn't want you to suffer the consequences of sin. And he will correct. He talks about scourging in verse 7. A second one is preventative discipline to put restrictions and limits around us to keep us from something much worse. I remember Dennis, I was talking to Dennis about raising kids, and he said, I always told my kids, nothing good happens after midnight. You put boundaries on your children. Why? You want to protect them. God disciplines us. He puts boundaries around us. The last one is educational training to help us see our weaknesses and our need for his power and help. And, and you see this other places in Scripture. God uses suffering. And, and really, we're talking about uh, sufferings that teach us something in this area of discipline. So uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, some people are sick because God wants them to learn not to misuse uh, at the Lord's Supper. Uh, there's preventative where Paul has a thorn in the flesh to keep him from pride that's going to hinder him as God's servant. Uh, Romans 5, 3 to 5, talks about uh, our trials teach us perseverance. There's things we would not otherwise learn. And in Philippians 1, there's, uh, it talks about our testimony for Christ is better um, because people see the reality of it. Well, in the rest of the passage, there's going to be seven observations that... Uh, the writer Hebrews takes from Proverbs uh, 3, 11 to 12. These actually come uh, by, from Eric Sauer, who was a theologian and Bible teacher in the, in the mid-1900s um, through uh, Dave McLeod's book. But I like them so well. Uh, we'll just look at these uh, very carefully. Um, discipline is a process in, in the ways of God. Notice verse uh, 5 again. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. This is God's reproof. This is God's discipline. This is how God's chosen to work in our lives and teach us. He brings obstacles in. He allows suffering. It's the way he teaches. It is the way God does it. But discipline is a proof of the love of God. Verse 6, for those whom... The Lord loves, he disciplines. Discipline shows God's love because it shows his interest in our lives and his desire for our good. Jerome wrote, the greatest anger of all is when God is no longer angry with us when we sin. And what he meant by that is the supreme punishment is when God leaves us alone is unteachable. Where you have to let your child go until they hit bottom. It's not your heart's desire that they hit bottom, but they won't hear anything else. So when God disciplines, it is an expression of God's love. Discipline is a proof of the fatherhood of God. 
Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Discipline proves we are sons and daughters of God. An undisciplined child is being treated like an outsider. You know, we complain about other people's children. We don't discipline them. If we're not under God's training, we're not his children. God disciplines every child. It is his responsibility as father. It is proof of the fatherhood of God. In verses 9 and 10, discipline is proof of the understanding of God. Verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Earthly fathers, no matter how wise, make mistakes. Sometimes after the child is out of the home, you say to yourself, boy, I wish I would have taught them this. But you only have them for a short time. And you do the best you can, but you make mistakes. But our Heavenly Father um, never makes mistakes. He knows exactly what's best for us. In verse 9, he says, and live. Jesus said he came to give us abundant life. And that quality of life comes as we submit to God's discipline and learn how to really live. In verse 10, he says it's for our good to share his holiness. God's discipline is for our good, so we avoid the pain of sin and, and the consequences in our lives and others. The fifth one is discipline is a scourge from the hand of God. Verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, Yet to those who have been trained by it, it afterwards yields peaceable fruit of righteousness. Some discipline is for our moral and spiritual training. Some is for corrective punishment. It's not joyful, but painful. When my dad would meet me in my room, my mom would send me to my room. She'd say, stay here till dad, your dad comes. Now, if, my, if I hadn't swiped a bunch of stuff, when my dad came home, we would play catch. We, we would have a good time. I had a wonderful dad. He was not abusive. But if I was up in my room, he'd come up and he'd say, why are you here? Stealing. You know how I feel about stealing? Yes, sir. Go down and get the belt on my door when I was upstairs. So he had to walk all the way down, get the belt, come back up. One time I slid a book in my pants. <laughs> It didn't work. And he would spank me. And then he would sit down with me and say, look, this is why. I really want you to get hold of this. You've got to stop this action. I'm sure he didn't spank me like I deserved. But sometimes God has to take corrective discipline. And he will. And it's not joyful, it's painful. But the goal is to keep us from sin. And it brings 
good results. Notice it says those who allow themselves to be trained by it um, have the peaceable fruit of righteousness. If you resist it, then God has to, to take it to another level or let you suffer the consequences of sin so that you learn that way. Number six, discipline has a purpose in the plan of God. Um, in verse seven, he says, it is for discipline that you endure. It, as endurance through discipline produces morally and spiritually trained believers. I love this, this statement. The sufferings of God's redeemed children have a deeper meaning than their outward appearance. God's plan is being worked out in all the difficulties, injustice, and losses in a believer's life. God has a plan that's good for us. And so I go through life and there's obstacles. Sometimes it, it's someone else, I'm suffering the consequences of someone else's sin. Sometimes it's just one of these obstacles, illness, uh, poor decision, and, and I have to deal with it. And God is using that to work out his plan in my life. And then number seven, discipline has as its product the holiness of God. Verse um, 11, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And, and verse 10, we may share his holiness. God's at work in the disciplines of life to show us the values that truly matter. Holiness, righteousness, right living towards others, peace. Well, as we come to the end of this passage, why discipline? A failure to respond rightly to God's discipline often leads to defection. Uh, someone shared Matthew 11. John the Baptist is in prison, and he's going through this experience, and he didn't expect that. He was the forerunner of the king. Why is he in prison? And he says to Jesus, are, are you the one, or do we seek somebody else? Do we drop you and look for somebody else? And Jesus ends that section by saying, and blessed is the one who's not offended in me. You look to the Lord Jesus, you take the situation from his hand. If you don't, if you become callous, if you collapse, it, it leads to you seeking some, your help, your solace somewhere other than Jesus Christ. And it robs you of that faith in him that carries you through. Andrew Murray, I hope you're able to read that, um, said here are four helps that helped him in trials. And we'll just end with this. He said, say, God brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place. And in that fact, I will rest. He will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. He will then make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lesson he intends for me to learn. In his good time, he can bring me out again how and when he knows. Therefore, let me say, I am here, one, by God's appointment, two, in his keeping, three, under his training, and four, for his time. 
And that's really what he's saying here in, in Hebrews chapter 12. God has committed himself to raising you to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. So fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Persevere. Hindrances, let them go. Sin, deal with it. And persevere, trusting his promises. And run. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And I'm sure in this body, there are things facing people here that can even be overwhelming. Lord, all of us face those things. So we just pray that we can minister to each other, we can encourage each other, we can point each other to the Lord Jesus, to the promises of God. But we pray for those moments when our hearts are overwhelmed that you, as the psalmist said, would lead us to the rock that's higher than I, that we might take refuge in you. So help us to run. Help us to be wise. Help us to see your hand in our lives and be willing to submit to your discipline that we might grow because we ask it in Jesus' name.